In this episode of the Dr. E Show, we did end up with a little bit of adult language in there, so if you've got little ones around, please grab your headsets now. Hello, this is Dr. Edith Ubuntu Chan. Welcome to the Dr. E Show, a show exploring the frontiers of our human possibilities in areas like health and wellness, science and spirituality, quantum biology, and conscious living, so that together we can awaken the best of ourselves and create our most joyful and fulfilling lives. DMT, the spirit molecule, has gained an explosion of interest in recent years. In a variety of communities, from the biohackers to the spiritual seekers to clinical psychologists alike. Here in San Francisco Bay Area and Silicon Valley, we're seeing a growing subculture of people using substances like DMT, LSD, ayahuasca as tools to accelerate their personal and spiritual growth with the intention of finding a deeper inner clarity, vision, and a greater understanding of life. But what if the human body is actually designed to make its own DMT? If so, how? And what are the pros and cons of taking a psychedelic substance from the outside in versus producing this potent and powerful medicine from the inside out? Get ready for a wild ride because my guest today is internationally renowned DMT expert, John Anthony Chavez. Originally, John came from a conventional background with a degree in business and worked as a lab technician in a biotech company in South San Francisco. But then in 2013, when he experienced a serious health crisis, he began researching natural and holistic approaches to healing. And this took him down a fascinating rabbit hole of experimentation and exploration, which ultimately led to an intensely powerful and completely unexpected mystical awakening experience. This experience changed the course of his life forever. And since then, John quit his day job and has devoted himself full-time to studying the science and physiology behind these supernatural human possibilities. Much of his research surrounds the famous spirit molecule DMT. John's first book, Questions for the Lion Tamer, is recognized by DMT experts around the world as one of the most comprehensive books ever written on this topic. And his much-anticipated new book, Questions for the Lion Tamer 2 will showcase the physiology of endogenous DMT, or what John likes to call endowaska. So please help me in welcoming my dear friend, the world-renowned DMT and human potential expert, John Chavez. Welcome, John. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Edith. Uh, world-renowned is a little bit big for my britches in terms of bigging me up, but I appreciate the kind words, and I'm just happy to be here with you. It's been a long time coming. I'm excited to see your show. You had Gerald Pollock. Um, you had uh, a couple other guests that have been great, and I'm just looking forward to being a part of it and talking about uh, the human potential and so much more. 
Thanks. So after that intro, I'm sure our audience is excited to hear more about this sudden mystical awakening experience. It started with you just getting healthy, trying to heal yourself from your illnesses. And then it yeah. took a wild turn. Tell us yeah, about that. Exactly. It was a uh, very unexpected. And I'm not going to say that I'm sort of expert at reversing, you know, detrimental health. It was more of an accident. But as we know, at this point in time, not everything's an accident. Most things aren't. Um, so like we said, uh, I was having a health crisis, I would say from 2005 all the way up to 2012, 2013. I had a pulmonary embolism in 2012, but leading up to that point, it's not like it came out of nowhere. I was having very bad sleep problems, bad gastrointestinal issues. Um, I just didn't feel well at all, low energy not living right, drinking too much, eating all the bad foods, really bad lifestyle, on the phone too much, on the computer too much, everything that basically the super wellness book says to do the opposite of. So basically, uh, in 2013, I was at my wit's end. Doctors didn't, the conventional doctors didn't have any answers, even though they tried their best. So I had no choice but to go ahead and dig into Google, go on the internet and try to figure out a way to reverse my health condition. So basically in the process, I believe it was in late August of 2013, I induced a purge, a gastrointestinal purge, layman's term, just massive diarrhea. And I would say that it took place for about five hours. I took a, a substance. I'm, not, I'm gonna leave it off uh, this podcast because I don't want people to accidentally hurt themselves. I'm just telling you about my accidental story. So I, I Let's just be blunt. I shit for five hours. I had a hundred bowel movements and like little by little, it's interesting because I started to feel like my life started, life force started to build up inside me. Like I felt like I could breathe better. I could see better. I could feel more calm. And it was just a very strange situation because up to that point, I had no idea that there was a connection between the brain and the gut anything that matter all I know is that I was on the toilet for a long time and I started to feel a lot better after I started to release uh, whatever was inside me and close when I was getting close to about the 90th time to shit um, I had something release out of me I, it was liquid you know for a while because obviously you you go that much to the bathroom it's not going to be solid so it was liquid and then about the 90th uh, bowel movement I felt like a hard uh, substance come out of me and I look in the toilet and it looked like a connected string of, of polyps uh, my girlfriend's a nurse she she swore that it looked like tumors but it didn't really even matter to me because the moment that that uh, string of polyps popped out of me I felt a huge electrical surge through my body it was from my tailbone all the way up to my head as well as outside of my hands and um, it was one of the it, that, that was the gateway to where I'm at today was just a, a huge electrical surge. And, and this electrical surge lasted for weeks, weeks after this, this initial, um, I guess, surge of electricity. And I just want to go into detail as to why I, I guess, deemed this as a mystical experience. Um, after I felt that electrical surge, I looked in the mirror and I could see like there was something a little bit different, something funny in my eyes. But I just felt so great. I felt like um, just elation. But I, I, I felt like something was different. And I always tell this story because I, I find it, you know, it's funny because it's personal. So usually when I try to shave, 
I shave with no, uh, I try, I usually try to shave with no shaving cream because I'm too lazy to go ahead and get the lather and wash off. So I just do it real quick. And usually when I try to do it, uh, it's really hard. Like the, the hair sticks. So I end up having to use shaving cream. But after this, uh, this purge, I'm talking about like 20 minutes after, like I, I go ahead and try to do the, the shaving thing and the hair is just flying off. And I used like dull razors, like, cause I'm too lazy to change it to like a brand new fresh razor and hair was just flying off. And I was like, wow, this is, this is kind of different. Like, I, I don't, I don't, I didn't make a big deal out of it, but I just felt like there was something a little different compared to my norm. Cause everybody knows their norm every day. Mm-hmm. Then I went to the kitchen, went, did some dishes. Some of the food was crusted on from being there a couple of days and boom, the food was just flying off the dishes. Uh, when I went into the shower, it's interesting because every time you turn on the shower, there's like a stream of cold water that comes out. And usually, you know, you break for it, you're like, ah, and then you're waiting for it to get warm. And the interesting thing is that th- this is all took place within the hour after I finished purging. I turn the shower on and then boom, the water hits me and I brace for it and I don't feel any cold sensation at all. Wow. So I'm, in, I'm, I'm taking a shower, taking a shower. And I'm like, man, this is really weird. Like, I'm just feeling like, mind you, I'm still feeling like this electrical surge and, and I'm still trying to process everything because I feel so great, better than I felt based on my whole life. So I crank up the water all the way to being cold and, you know, I'm expecting to feel it and same thing, nothing. Like, wow, this is, this is different. I don't, I don't know what it is, but it, it almost seems like my intent can change how I sense, you know, the exterior world. So, you know, at, at this point, I'm just like, you know, really kind of in the zone of just feeling just an electric buzz. But another interesting thing that I, I realized was that when I would t- touch metallic objects, after I got out of the shower, I'd touch a metallic object with my bare hands, the metallic object would get hot, like within like three seconds, like I could feel it. And it was, um, I was just like, whoa, there's some, this is something different. I would walk outside and then it would be like an uh, electrical uh, wires and I could feel them like physically, like I would feel like they were, it was like really close to my skull to the point where I felt like it was, it was bothering my, whatever my field, or I didn't even know what it was at the time. And I just felt like, wow, you know, this is something, this is an experience that I didn't think anybody could ever experience in terms of controlling, I guess, how their body reacts to cold water and just feeling like electrical sensations. To go a little further, like two days later, I'm, I'm still trying to process this whole experience. At night, I don't know if you know, you li- the listeners out there notice that like sometimes your feet will get cold and at this time, like uh, a couple nights later after the experience, I, I visualize, I just had an intuitive thought to visualize warmth going down to my right foot to, I guess, uh, alleviate the coldness. And within like two seconds, my foot was warm from the inside. And then I, I grabbed my foot with my hand and it felt like warm. And then I grabbed my left foot, which I didn't visualize, and it was cold, cold like it normally is. So I was like, wow, okay, let me make the left one warm. Boom, two seconds, just like that. And at that point, I was like, okay, this is, this is interesting because it seems like my visualization allows me to control my body in, in a different sort of way. 
and like I said, this is all intuition. I hadn't even begun to read about any of the mystical thing, body electric, DMT, none of that. I hadn't read any of this. So none of this was coming from an intellectual perspective. It was all just intuition, a different intuition that I'd never felt before in my life. So the next day, I had the inkling, just like I said, another intuition. I'm sitting with my girlfriend at night. We're just kind of listening to the soft music with the salt lamp. And um, I just had the intuition to use the same exact mechanics that I used to warm my right foot and my left foot. I just wanted to see if there was any effect. Because like I said, I, I felt fields like uh, electric wires around me, like 30 feet away, 40 feet away, no problem. So in my mind, I felt like, well, if I could feel the electric wires and I can control you know, my, my body's temperature at will, maybe there's a possibility that, I, that this field, whatever it is, I can use these same mechanisms to connect physically with somebody else. So that's exactly what I did. I used the same visualization to warm my right foot, and I visualized the same kind of electrical light going to my girlfriend's head. And what had happened was as soon as I visualized it vividly, she, she jolted back with her head. I didn't tell that what I was doing. She just jolted back. And at that very moment, I knew that you could connect with somebody else in, in a certain manner. Um, but I just didn't know what it meant. And like I said, back to intuition, my next intuitive thought was that this is maybe like a gateway to telepathy and how that might, that might work. Mm-hmm. So I just started to, you know, visualize. I told her what I was going to do. I'm going to visualize me connecting with you and I'm going to send images to your mind. And it was like, it was literally like magic. Cause you know, if I was visualizing like a pineapple going from my mind to her mind over that electrical visualization that I made, that's the only thing that would come to her mind. And it was not just one time. It was not just two times, but it was like five times in a row would work. And then the funny thing is that I noticed that the more excited that I got, uh, the less it works. So it's almost like I disrupted my own chemistry to make that. If you disrupt your own chemistry, these these things aren't possible. But it just it was a really interesting thing. And then I I just delved into reading after that. Just I I just like all right, this is real. All the scientists or the science minded people I'm talking to are are denying that this is real. So. At this point, I have no choice but to do my own research and try to figure this thing out. Wow. So what then brought you to focus your research on DMT as kind of like the, the hub in this, in this wheel of all the, there's so many spokes, like the telepathy and the healing yeah. and the hot, cold thing and so yeah. many aspects to it. What made you decide that DMT might be at the core of this stuff? Well, um, it's funny because I was at my sister's wedding, actually, and I tried to talk to my younger cousin who was in medical school about my experience, and he tried to brush it off, and he, and he just told me, why don't you look up DMT? And I was like, okay, all right, well, I guess I'm not sharing with you anymore. So I did look up DMT, and I was like, wow, I didn't even know it existed. This is a spirit molecule, and apparently people have... Uh, very interesting experiences when they ingest it exogenously, but interestingly enough, it's produced endogenously. And what I found, you know, Edith, was that over time, 
your ability to communicate your mystical experience comes down to be able to reducing the experience down to something tangible for this era of discussion. And for me, DMT is interesting as the crown jewel of reducing an experience uh, down to a chemical level, which is something that I feel is needed because we live in a very chemical, happy sort of scientific minded society where that's that's the language that we use to discuss things so for me dmt is more of a talking point i believe it's very important molecule in the body but at the same time uh, there's so many other chemicals in the body thousands of chemicals that are playing key roles in nanosecond uh fractions you know so to reduce it down to one thing from a scientific perspective is 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 a little bit faulty, but from a conversation perspective, DMT is extremely perspective. Does that make sense? So it's kind of like the gateway drug into this whole conversation. Exactly. I mean, that's, that's the way I look at it. I mean, don't get me wrong. I think that it plays an important role as antioxidant, you know, very protective of anti-inflammatory compounds and, and, or potential and, and stuff of that nature. But re realistically speaking, this spiritual discussion has been taking place forever, right? And especially if you know you were taking conversations from the early 1900s, there wasn't any DMT to reduce it down to. It was always like somebody's trying to explain their mystical experience, and then everybody's trying to deny it, right? Like you didn't really have that experience, or you just hallucinated. And for me, it's like, okay, well, we hallucinate, so there must be a hallucinatory compound that coincides with it. And then, you know, the discussion can get a little bit more in depth. It just breaks that door open to be like, hmm, I can't deny your experience because I can't deny a molecule and mm -hmm. it exists. And, you know, the entire industry knows that it's produced endogenously. So it, it affords us the opportunity to have these discussions with people that normally wouldn't be open to these, these discussions. Does that make sense? So for our audience that might be new to DMT science. Can you break it down? Give us a little quick mini class on DMT. There are three types of DMTs that we know about. And when people ingest these three different types of DMT from outside in, they have slightly different experiences. Can you just give us a little mini class on that? So DMT is a dimethyltryptamine. It's considered a, one of the most powerful hallucinogenic compounds in the world. Our body produces three of them, NN-dimethyltryptamine, 5-methoxy-dimethyltryptamine, uh, and bufotenine, which is 5-hydroxyl-DMT. Uh, like Edith said, it's three, three powerful compounds that our body produces, and we don't know why. From some of the research, it seems that it acts as a strong antioxidant, much like melatonin, much like glutathione. So it alludes to the notion that it might actually be a good thing for the body. In terms of the transcendental states that people have from smoking it, that's very different than the way that, you know, it naturally forms within the body. So it's, it's an interesting conversation in terms of, you know, when people are talking about purely exogenous experiences compared to, you know, the endogenous discussion. 3DMTs, I believe that they play a role in the dream state. I believe that if we're going to have a discussion about hallucinatory phenomena, we have to start in the dream state. This is, hallucinations is based on seeing what's not there. And I guess that would be the most common hallucinatory phenomenon that people experience every night. You've got 7 billion people experiencing dream states at night. It's a natural discussion, I think, uh, to, I guess, involve DMT with the dream state. And if you look at the mechanisms of sleep and dreams, 
there's a lot of overlap with meditation, hypnosis, trance-like states, out-of-body experiences, sleep paralysis, sensory deprivation, Wim Hof method, the whole thing, right? It's, there's a lot of overlap. Being able to pinpoint whether DMT is, is regulated during these moments of transcendental states, it's, that's going to be a difficult feat for you know, the scientists to, to develop equipment to truly understand a little better. But I definitely believe that it's a conversation worth having. So what do we know so far about the physiological function of DMT beyond the fact that it's a powerful antioxidant? So we know it's a powerful antioxidant. We know it's associated with these visionaries or quote unquote hallucination states or dream states. What else physiologically is it doing in our body? Because I've heard that there's tons of DMT receptors in the lungs. Is that yeah, true? I mean, What's it doing there? You know, what else do we know? Well, the enzyme that converts uh, tryptamine to DMT, the, the highest concentration is in the lungs. You know, there's some scientists that feel that I've heard them say DMT is life, where it's, you know, we need our lungs to live. And I don't, you know, me personally, I don't believe that the blood circulates DMT because the levels have been so low. I think it's produced throughout the central nervous system. And if they are being produced in the lungs, they're getting distributed via, I don't know, somewhere within the central nervous system, astrocytes or, or something of that nature. I think that it's almost everything is localized. Uh, secretion and and localized activation that that's my perspective what it's doing in the lungs that's still a million dollar question either but in terms of the importance of our lung function and overall health i mean that can't be denied so obviously there's there's something important taking place whether we can identify one two three four or five uh, roles that is playing in terms of our physiology that is yet to be determined but uh, e. Fresca, I consider a friend. He's a leading DMT researcher out of uh, Hungary. He's a legitimate scientist, and his perspective is that DMT just plays a overall protective role, and that is necessary for you know high functioning of the body. Where else is it at high levels that we know about? High levels that we know about, I think the adrenal glands, you know, it's interesting DMT has also been observed to be upregulated during high times of stress. They've seen that in rats. Another interesting thing that I need to make a note of is, I think this was an unpublished study, Stephen Barker discussed this, that when they administered LSD to rats, they actually saw an increase, significant increase. I believe it was like 400% of NNDMT and a thousand percent of 5-MeO-DMT uh, increase in those levels in, in rats from LSD administration. And that led him to postulate that a lot of these psychedelic compounds are just upregulating our own psychedelic uh, system. Oh, and interesting. That, yeah, I found it extremely fascinating because it means that, I, I don't know what it means, but it's just very interesting in a sense of, you know, most people think that we take a compound and it's just that specific compound that's creating the effect. But it was obvious that the LSD was just upregulating the DMT, you know, and, and that is a very interesting conversation going forward. Wow. One of the challenges of studying DMT and the physiology around DMT is I've heard it gets metabolized so fast in seconds 
that it's hard to capture, you know, because it's like a snapshot in time and it changes so fast, which is why ayahuasca is a brew that has the DMT and the MAOI in it. Can you yeah, talk about, you know, your research is around endowasca, this, this inside out generation of the, the right proportions of, of DMT yeah. and MAOI. Can you talk about the role of MAOI and what do we know about MAOI production in the human body? Yeah. Sure. So, you know, monoamine oxidase is the compound that breaks down DMT r rather quickly. So let's say you were to eat the tree bark of something that has like a gram of DMT, which would be considered like 20,000% higher than what normally somebody would take. Uh, you won't feel any effects because MAO breaks down the DMT. So in ayahuasca, you, you take a monoamine oxidase inhibitor. So MAOI to go ahead and prevent the breakdown of DMT, which allows it to be orally active. And then you have the subsequent effects of ayahuasca. However, in the body, we also have our own monoamine oxidase inhibitors. Unfortunately, there isn't a whole lot of research on them uh, in recent times. It seems as though the NIH had a lot of research when it came to like INMT and maybe some MAOIs in the 80s and 90s, but recently there hasn't been so much um, one of the most interesting MAOIs that I've seen in the body in terms of the amount of research that's been done on it is tribulin. Tribulin uh, is, is one of the, yeah, like I said, it's one of the most well-studied. And one of the interesting things I find, I found out in recent times was that tribulin is actually upregulated uh, during REM sleep, especially at like 3 a.m. So it makes me believe that it's not so much that the body's producing massive amounts of DMT during dream state. It might just be more so that we are lessening the breakdown, allowing us to go ahead and have these experiences during the dream state. And that's why, you know, the endowasca system is much more comprehensive than just talking about DMT, right? Uh, I think that's one of the, the most, I guess, left out portions of endogenous DMT discussion, at least from what I've seen with all the scientists out there, there's, very little focus on MAOI. And I think that we, that's where the future of DMT discussion is gonna be, a more comprehensive perspective of what's going on, right? We're not just gonna be focused on one molecule and the enzyme that upregulates that molecule and the gene that correlates with the upregulation. We're gonna be focusing on a cascade of biochemicals that correlate with these experiences. So, you know, we need to focus on the entire thing not just NNDMT as well, like Bufo and 5-MeO as well as the MAOIs. So I think, um, yeah, in terms of endowasca, we have, you know, there's multiple MAOIs. There's pinaline, triptyline, harmane, neurocatin, as, long as, as well as tribulin. And these things need to be taken into account when we're talking about our visionary states. And I've heard you talk about the importance of, of starting to kind of gain a more mature understanding in this conversation that just like any other medicines, the different doses makes a huge difference, right? Maybe at the high doses, we have this completely like transcendental, huge, massive, life-changing mystical experience, but, but maybe at lower doses is maybe a uh, uh, antioxidant, neuroprotective, maybe anti-cancer. We don't know. Like there's a lot of, at low doses, a lot of physiological changes that are really important from a health and medicine perspective that is worthy of study. Can you Absolutely. talk about what you know about the dose modulation? Yeah, I mean, look, we have to look at uh, Dr. Rick Strassman's study in the 1990s, right? He, he's the one who did the, 
the major study in, I think it was 1992 through 1994, something of that nature at University of Mex New Mexico. And he did four different doses of DMT. So much of the focus in DMT, the spirit molecule, and all the YouTube videos that people do, everybody seems to be focused on just the breakthrough dose, the blast through dose, 75 milligrams, 100 milligrams, whatever it is that you use to blast through. But in Rick Strassman's study, he did four levels. And two of those levels were sub-psychedelic, meaning that people had no visionary experiences. And I found that the most interesting thing, right? Because this is considered a very powerful hallucinogen, but the two sub-psychedelic doses had profound uh, effects as well. And for me, what was most interesting was that the lowest dose had a euphoric feeling. So there were some people in Rick Strass's trial that had been heroin prior to the trial, you know, just as, you know, they're experimenting with drugs and they compared the lowest dose of DMT to what heroin felt like, just complete euphoria. So once again, we have to have a more mature, like you said, a more mature conversation about the role of DMT in the body, especially when we're talking about mental health, mental well-being. Another note that I wanted to make in terms of Strassman's trial was that he also uh, took measurements of the various other biochemicals that were affected from DMT administration. So it's not like he just injected DMT and there was no effects and other biochemicals being either upregulated or downregulated. He saw a huge cascade effect. So we have to realize when we're talking about taking one drug, it doesn't, it's not just that one drug that's causing the effect. There's a huge surge in other chemicals that are changing and create that effect. So I, I think these are real, really important things to know going forward. What do we know from, say, EEG studies about the brain states that are associated with different levels of DMT? Yeah, so basically there's the exogenous studies that have been verified, right? Because you know there's a compound that's been ingested, whether it be ayahuasca or DMT or 5-MeO, and it seems as though there's a significant upregulation in gamma wave amplitude. Interestingly enough, you know, you see the same thing during REM sleep. You see a very high surge in gamma wave. Long-time meditators, you see gamma waves that aren't even measurable because they're so high. Uh, in hypnosis, you see these same gamma waves. So it's, it's interesting in the sense that there seems to be a consistency in terms of the EEG data. And, you know, the one thing I got to say about EEG data is that it can be a little bit difficult to interpret sometimes based on the equipment, based on the person administering the EEG, being able to decipher true uh, activity or, or artifacts. So these are all things to take into account. But Based on my research, it seems as though there is a, a significant consistency with the uh, gamma wave activity in the brain from exogenous EMT and states that are speculatively observed or projected to be correlating with endogenous DMT. Hmm. And in terms of the brainwave state, I, I want to give your listeners a little uh, background in terms of, you know, what does gamma mean? Well, usually there's, there's five brainwave states. So the slowest one is delta. That's the one we experience when we're in non-REM sleep. So sleep stages one through four. Theta is the next one. So there's delta is the slowest. Theta is a little faster. That's when we're in our, our trance-like states, maybe right before we go to sleep, uh, meditation, hypnosis. If you can get deep enough, you'll see the theta state. And then, and then we have the alpha state, which is a little faster. 
same kind of relaxation. You're kind of in a flow state, but you're not stressed. And then as it goes higher, you get into the beta state where you know, you're hyper-focused, maybe a little stressed. And at the higher end of beta, you're very stressed. And then at the higher state, it's gamma. So that's why it's an interesting conundrum because we have, you know, our sleepy, 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 we're waking up, we're waking up, we're hyper-focused, and then boom, you know, once we hit that gamma, we are in a state that is either hyper-hyper-focused where our senses are expanded, like, to a level that we're not fully comprehending at this current time. I think the gamma wave is relatively new in terms of understanding what this means in the brain. The reason why the EEG was even designed was to study telepathy by Hans Berger. Oh, I didn't I think, know that. Yeah, in 1927, he designed the EEG to study telepathy. That, that's why it was designed. But it, it wasn't up until the 1990s where the digitization of EEG utilizing computers where we could see the gamma wave spikes. So I speculate that he had it right in terms of using EEG to study telepathy, but he didn't have the digital equipment to measure gamma waves. And based on, you know, studying all this stuff about DMT and meditation, hypnosis, REM sleep, it seems as though the gamma wave state is what he needed to see to study telepathic transfer, telepathic communication. So, you know, he's not around anymore. Hans Berger, I think his name is, but we're carrying the torch for you, man. Are there studies that show telepathy happens when we modulate our brain state to the gamma frequencies? I've been in contact with Rupert Sheldrake and Dean Radin. Those are considered, I guess, the two leading guys and or the two most well-known guys in terms of telepathy studies. And I don't think they've got there yet. I'd like to actively get involved in the years to come in terms of designing, you know, optimized study for this because I'm studying it from the inside out. You know, so I feel like for, to optimize a study to really, I guess, verify how things take place, you need, to, you need to design them from the inside out rather than designing it from the skeptic side outside in, which makes things a little too cumbersome to, to actually study the mechanics behind these things, you know. So instead of creating a study to prove that something exists, you have to design a study to understand the mechanisms for how it takes place. Two very different things, you know. Mm, let's talk more about that. What's the problem with studying things from the skeptic's perspective? For something like telepathy, a skeptic's perspective is like, all right, we need to blindfold you. We need to have you in a different room. We need to make sure that you're not sending signals to, you know, do your telepathic transfer because you don't, this thing ain't even supposed to exist. So they put all these barriers. And it's like, okay, I, I get that. I, I understand that perspective. But that's an issue when you are trying to study the mechanisms for this actually taking place, right? For me, like, you need to be able to visualize the person across from you. You're not going to be doing any funny business with hand signaling because this is not the game that you're playing. From my perspective, you're trying to study the mechanisms of this. You're not trying to, you know, make sure that the, the person's not trying to do some magic trick on this. And that's what I'm saying, like, there, it's very different, you know, in, in terms of the barriers that they put to effectiveness. I think from the skeptic's perspective, they're trying to put a lot of barriers that would make this thing a lot easier to study because they're, they're so skeptical of it actually taking place that they want to, they, they don't know the mechanisms for, with it, for how it takes place. So I think they're accidentally putting barriers to 
lessen the chance that they can actually see this phenomena. Hmm, yeah. it's interesting because in our interview with the Breatharian documentary filmmaker Peter Brabringer, mm-hmm. he said yeah. that all those Breatharian studies are put in these artificial controlled environment where there's no natural sunlight, where there's horrible recycled air or pollution, and the set and setting is so important in these states. And I wonder in in these uh, telepathy studies, yeah, a lot of these mechanisms in the design is specifically set up so that it makes it harder for the subject to drop into that state. And it reminds me what you said when you had your mystical experience, you noticed that if you're just relaxed and playful, you could do the telepathy. But if you're trying too hard, it was made it actually not work as well. And so part of that study has to support the subject if we're interested in really nurturing the higher levels of human possibility we need to create a nurturing environment of it not a conflict prove that you're wrong kind of environment yeah i mean well there's that and it's also just having a a more comprehensive perspective right i mean light changes your eeg I mean, that's that's an undeniable fact at this point. Different lighting will change your EEG. Different stressors will change your EEG. And EEG, it's not just brain activity. This is secretion of different biochemicals that have different effects, you know, different, different everything. I, I don't understand it when they try to force somebody to be in their unnatural habitat and then they expect it to be the same. You wouldn't grow a tomato plant in the dark, man, you know? So why would you try to foster you know, the same thing with a person from completely, I wouldn't say unnatural environment, but not a conducive environment that they would want for their own experience, you know? Yeah. Very strange. Yeah. Yeah. In my book, I also mentioned this conundrum of so much of what we think about health and physiology and biology is based on data that came out of these super artificial lab studies. That yeah. You know, what if light, like you said, or, you know, fresh oxygenated air, contact with nature, all these things change our nervous system and therefore our immune system, our hormones, all these things have cascade effects when we're in the right harmonious environment versus artificial lighting, recycled air, staying in an indoor box of a cage and being studied and poked and prodded, our physiology is could be extremely different and therefore the conclusions could be completely non-applicable to real life. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think that's a disturbing trend that's, you know, taking place within certain sectors of the scientific field. You know, it's it's getting a little bit nutty. I mean, mutated mice with no immune system and it's very unnatural. It doesn't translate and there's a lot of money being spent on these things and there's no, you know, the return on them is very poor. And, you know, this is not to degrade any scientists out there that are doing these ex- experiments, but it's just, come on, like we, we need to get a little bit more in tune with the natural world, I think, if we want to have results, because ultimately we want end results, right? So we're, we're doing mutated mouse studies with no immune system and trying to develop uh, drugs to help people and we're not getting those results, maybe we need to go back to square one and realize that maybe because we're artificially breeding the mice, maybe if we took a more natural approach and took regular mice and, you know, as unfortunate as this sounds, you know, you induce cancer into them, 
that would be that's like a night and day from from these weird sort of mutated studies and uh, i think that science people within science need to be careful with that mentality and, and the expectations of all that if you were to design your ideal studies what might those look like the yeah. stuff that you're exploring tell us more about how you would design studies differently uh let me see for me i would optimize the study for success so you want to there's there's a person claiming that there's telepathic transfer of it like that it's real that there's no funny business so let's just say it's me let's say i'm part of a study you're going to be the receiver so it's just two people and then we have our scientists so i say that telepathy is real i'm going to show you guys how it's done either sits six feet away from me I get into my trance state. I visualize that I make a connection with her. We both were an EEG cap, so you can see my brainwave activity. We can see yours. When I make the connection with you, you should be able to, you should visually see that your eyes start to twitch into rapid eye movement, and that should correlate with, you know, measurable activity and brain activity. And, um, you know, if you want to get really fancy with it and you start to take blood samples and you see biochemical cascade changes during these, you know, moments, uh, maybe you could have a biophoton capture camera to see things possibly emanating outside of the body. I don't know, but it would be a very basic study. It wouldn't be this trickery, tricky business where you got to be like down the block or something, you know, because we need to make sure that I'm not giving you hand signals to what I'm transferring to, you, you know. But, you know, for telepathy, it's very straightforward. You got to be able to make a connection with somebody before you make the transfer of an image. So the one thing that I've seen consistently with telepathy is that, you know, you've made the connection when the receiver goes into rapid eye movement. And I've seen this, not seen this, but I've worked with hypnotherapists all, across, all around the world that I work with them because they know how to induce trance state. That's just basically it. You know, it's not because hypnosis is any magic. It's just they work in the trance states. So if you're in the trance state, all these things come up online. That's what it seems like to me. All this potential comes online. They've been able to have it like, like easy. There's like, what's next? That was too easy. What's next? So they, they get their client in the trance. They have the, the client visualized a telepathic connection with somebody else. That person goes into rapid eye movement and at that point, they know the connection has been made and then they could just start transferring images and it works. As long as you stay in the trance state, it works. This is not a complicated or far-fetched thing. This is simple. Like my, my thing is pushing the envelope so we can figure out what else there is, right? So what I else mean, would you like to study besides telepathy? What other next level human possibility symptoms would be interesting to study? Well, spontaneous remission of disease is super interesting. Uh, all the hands-on healing, Qigong, Reiki, reconnective healing. I mean, that's a must, right? Because obviously, I think that DMT is produced throughout the body localized. So let's say you have, it doesn't even have to be a disease, uh, Edith. It could be a fracture. It could be a wound, right? And I think that you have been privy to some experiences when hands-on healing has a very significant effect on wounds, you know? And yes. this type of stuff needs to be fully popularized. Because like, from my perspective, most of this stuff has been studied in the lab. It's just that people don't really know about it because there's not a big propaganda machine pushing the results of this stuff out there, you know? 
And I think that's really what us as seekers need to realize when, when we're discussing these things and, and thinking about well, what's going to prove or what's going to help humanity. I go back to my marketing background, the popular popularization of results, the marketing of results, like the acceptance by the masses of these things is what it takes to have it accepted as a truth. Something that could be true easily, right? It takes place in a lab in Scandinavia and nobody knows about it. It's still 100% true, but you know, you don't have 7 billion people knowing about it. So it's still up in the air. But that, that's my perspective is that the studies are great and all, but a platform to distribute the results of the study in a way that the general public can understand, that's, that's really what we're looking for. So tell us how you're working towards that utopian ideal where we can create a society where these really self-empowering truths get disseminated to empower everybody to heal themselves from inside out. I mean, you know, I talk about this in my Super Wellness book a lot, is that a lot of these things are actually so simple and so innate and so natural to our human physiology. We don't tap into it because we're not going to see the advertisements on TV saying, hey, you should do some breathing. Hey, you should, you know, like go get some sunshine or get deeper sleep or these things are nobody can make money off of you. So there's no profit center kind of driving the, the dissemination of this kind of science. Yeah. Problem, you know. It, it is a big problem. And that's why, you know, the DMT and the conversation about it is so powerful to me in, in a sense of you can put a lot behind it. You can put a lot, you can put DMT on the top and put a lot under it. You know, you can put all the heal, hands-on healer guys. You could put all the hypnosis studies. You can put all the meditation studies. You can put all, like a lot of stuff, right? It's, it's an umbrella to me in terms of driving a wedge into this society and say, hey, DMT exists. Why does it exist? Let's have a fun conversation. And um, for me, uh, my goal is to finish the second book and then maybe do a third, you know, eventually build a platform with you know, heavy duty funders to go ahead and, and put money into researching DMT more as a conversation piece. I think it's great that you know, we study the enzymes and where it's secreted and you know, all that. But in terms of how things become popularized in modern culture, it's just based on the number of researchers in it, right? Like the gene theory of disease, it's popularized because we have maybe tens of thousands of people researching this stuff. So that becomes the dominant topic of conversation. So let's say we raise something crazy like $500 million for DMT research. Then we have a different you know, avenue to go ahead and say, hey, you know, we got, you know, 300 studies taking place all at once. And we're going to be talking about a lot of them going forward. So I, I think that's how you change the world is, you know, you have to think a little bit more on, on the marketing, the marketing aspect and the popularization of something. And, and you have to know how to do that. And luckily, you know, I have a background in that. And it, I'm happy that it might be able to serve a purpose to help humanity going forward, you know. Wow, wonderful. I have so many more questions, but I'd love if we can switch gears and talk about the body electric, because I know you're a really big fan of that work. What do these states have to do with the electric flow? Yes, that book. 
What um, do these altered states that where there's upregulation of DMT have to do with the electricity of the body? You know, it's interesting because like we talked about EEG earlier, and that's, you know, it's a standard equipment these days for neuroscientists. You got all the channels. If you want to go crazy with the channels, I think they have 128 channels or something like that. And they're basically measuring microelectric currents that take place that coincide with changes in brain activity. In the body electric, Dr. Becker used a direct current measurement. So it was a very much more simple equipment to measure changes in consciousness. It was basically plus, minus, minus, plus. So he just wanted to measure whether it was flipping, it coincided with different changes in, in consciousness. So just for example... For those who are listening just to the audio and not seeing the video, when you said plus, minus, you pointed to your forehead and your yeah. back of your skull, and then you flipped yeah. it around. Yes, it's just front to back potential. That's what Dr. Becker utilized to measure changes in consciousness. And from what I, from what I remember, when it was uh, deeply negative at the front, uh, basically on your forehead, and positive at the back, you were in a very focused state. So it could be considered like a, like a beta state. Mm -hmm. And when it flipped, when the front was positive and the back was negative, that coincided with the dream, uh, not with dream state, with sleep. So he noted, he, the reason why he was taking these measurements is because he was studying, uh, anal, what do you call it, analgesia. So when, it, when he would, because most of his research was based on studying regeneration of limbs. Mm -hmm. So he studied how salamanders would regenerate their arms after they got cut off. And he noticed that there was a change in consciousness that took place with that regeneration. And that's what got me really interested because he noticed that when there was changes in consciousness, there was changes in the, the direction of the current, not only in the brain, but throughout the body as well. And just based on my experience of electric surge, you know, I, I needed a different perspective of just strictly biochemical understanding of the body. I needed somebody to tie it in from an electrical perspective. And Becker did a, an awesome job of doing everything really he he looks at the body from a from an electrical and chemical perspective and he offers like a lot of insight and one of the interesting things that i found is that you know things that would be considered miraculous like let's say a grown rat like a, a rat is not an amphibian it's a mammal and these animals don't have that regenerative capability that salamanders do but when he changed the electrical i guess capacity of the rat using very low electric currents. You know, most people would think you got to use a high electric, electric current, but he used very low electric microcurrent, and it would actually induce generation of a rat limb. Wow. Like, oh, we're, we're, we're in the discussion of something that could be deemed like a miracle. I mean, to me, that's a miracle. If, if, it, if a grown human could regenerate an arm, that's, that's miraculous. I don't care if it takes six years. That, that would be considered miraculous. So he was on the path towards understanding like mysteries of physiology that I mean to this day I, I, I wish he was around you know I wish he wrote more books because it's it's really groundbreaking stuff and yeah and it's, crazy uh, that that's not on front page news everywhere this kind of discovery yeah because it's um it's a lot I'm not going to say that it's simpler but it's a, a much more it, it is. I mean, it's a straightforward process in terms of what he was looking at, right? He's like, let me, let me alter different currents. Let me change like, the, the strength of certain currents and we'll see the effect. And this, the changes in the currents, you're going to see 
from the current change, you're going to see biochemical change. You're going to see genetic change. You're going to see enzyme change from the electricity. Mm-hmm. And that's why I was so interested in this because, yeah, there's the DMT and the MAOI, and I think it's important, but there's an electrical aspect, and that's a layer of the body that extends past the physical. So DMT is a great conversation to have, but it can't extend past my finger, you know? So you need to be able to have dual conversations of chemicals taking place in here, but it's also taking, coinciding with changes in electricity, electromagnetic field, however you want to deem it, mm-hmm. that, that can extend past the body. You know, how far it can extend, you know, that's really the debate these days. But, you know, that's just the natural progression of discussion from my perspective. So from a purely hypothetical perspective, what can we do without using external equipment to modulate the plus and minus on a conscious level? Yes. So it just seems as though respiration is for anybody listening that's not a meditator or doesn't have a practice like that. It's basically comes down to respiratory rate. If you can engage yourself in rhythmic breathing, like just deep in and out for, you know, 10, 15 minutes, you're obviously going to feel different. Mm -hmm. And usually that the more relaxed you are, the more that pole is going to flip. So the more relaxed, one of the studies that Becker saw was that they did a study on hypnosis with that same measurement. And he noticed when the people were in trance states from from a hypnotherapist, the pole would flip into almost like a sleep state. But, you know, it doesn't just have to be hypnosis. It's just deeply relaxed. How do you get deeply relaxed? Most people, the way they get deeply relaxed is to have a beer. But, you know, you can just get deeply relaxed from taking deep breaths in and out and listening to, you know, whatever relaxative music from YouTube. So this is free. And that's why I find so interesting is that inducing these relaxative states are good for the body and they're a gateway to these things that we deem as magic. Wow. You know, I, I know that Becker was an MD. So would you say that he designed his studies in the way that you would approve that was really looking at how to apply it clinically in a practical way versus these kind of like mutated mice with no immune system and they're trying to somehow extrapolate the data to a human yeah. model. It's like so far-fetched, some of these studies. Absolutely, absolutely. I think that played a huge role. He, he always had a, a, in his books, he always goes back to like, well, what difference does it make in terms of my experiments? They need to be applicable to humans. That's why I would love to see more MDs like a Becker, even like, Chinese medicine doctors like you getting involved with researchers to design functional studies. We need functional studies, people. Like, I think this is very important going forward. So we don't waste time and money because those are the valuable things in life. We need to be able to see functionality faster so, so we can dump more money into things that show promise. Beautiful. So... I would love to hear about your upcoming projects, how our listeners can support you in this amazing work that you're doing right now, and also how we can keep in touch. So let's say we have those that have the deeper pockets that are excited about this vision that you're bringing forth. How can we donate money to support your cause? 
some stuff I'm going to keep offline for now because when we make a splash, it's, it's going to be a monster. So I'm, I'm not going to mention, I guess, the name or the people involved yet. You can reach out to me at q4lt.com. You know, you can, uh, my email is all over the website, q4lt00 at gmail.com. But we are getting a group of scientists together and uh, popularize the DMT thing, you know, because it's, it's a must at this point in time. It's too important to not discuss there's hundreds of billions of dollars going into mutated weird studies. So I think that we deserve a piece of that pie in terms of the implications for humanity. Understanding how to optimize our health is going to be part of it. Understanding how to reverse disease is a big thing, but also getting into the more esoteric aspects like, you know, what death is. Is reincarnation real? I believe it is. The whole human experience is a, is a very important topic, but you know, for, for, Initially, I think the DMT research is going to be very grounded, but it has to work. Its, it has to have a goal. And my goal is to work its way towards, you know, the very outliers of the outliers, right? I mean, Edith, we have the bell curve and then we have whatever the 5% on each side, which is like telepathy and healing of the hands. But there's the 5% of the 5%, right? That's like outliers of the outliers. And I know that you've kind of gotten into that in terms of reading it and Pranic festival and the whole thing. So I, I think that's where humanity needs to be comfortable with those conversations is, you know, the far-fetched things that actually are real. Some people have a better grasp of how they take place. The majority don't, but that doesn't mean that has nothing to do with truth, right? Yeah, well, right now, what are the big things that bog us down? We are chronically stressed out, chronically sick. A lot of people are anxious, people suffer from PTSD, tons and tons of cancers going on. You know, tell us how DMT research can help us solve these really urgent problems going on in our society. Yeah, well, I mean, stress state, let's say you're stressed and let's say you have a clean diet and you exercise and you try to get good sleep and you, know, you still have an illness, you know, whether it be cancer or whatever. The literature out there indicates that it's autonomic signaling that is leading to these diseases. Autonomic signaling is signaling that apparently you're not supposed to have control over. That's the name of autonomic, but you know, the Wim Hof study, PNAS, Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences in 2014, unequivocally that using Wim Hof method, you could consciously influence your autonomic nervous system. Yes. That goes with warming your right hand, warming your left hand, so yeah, there's the you know and the modulating fun. your immune system function consciously. Exactly. Yeah, no doubt about it. But you know the other interesting thing is that autonomic control has been observed in plenty of studies from hypnosis going back to the 70s. Meditation has shown the same thing. Even the placebo effect. There, there's a study out there that shows a correlation between the effectiveness of placebo effect and autonomic control. So I I think that. You know, there's neural pathways that correlate with faulty signaling. So let's say you had a traumatic event, uh, whatever it might be. Let's say somebody cheated on you and, you know, you can't get over it. I, I, I happen to think that that correlates with a neural pathway in your brain that correlates with signaling in the body. And you're not going to be able to alleviate the signaling in the body if you don't change the neural pathway in the brain. And that's where a lot of these techniques like the breathing and the meditation, hypnosis, can have a great effect on changing your wiring to change your signaling. It's, a, it's important stuff, I, I think, because 
it's easy access. It's right here. It's right now. You know, Edith knows plenty about that. And that's why you're having success with your practice. And cancer, I've heard that DMT has been found. It's been found in a, in a melanoma cell line. Nobody knows what it's doing there. Uh, I speculate that it's attempting to kind of put a band-aid on the wound so we don't have like mass cellular death that can affect us negatively. But there's a lot of research that needs to be done to understand what, what it's doing in there in, in a cell line, you know. But there's, there's so much functionality. It's been likened by Eat Fresca as a Swiss Army knife. DMT? Yeah, as a Swiss Army knife. I mean, the one thing I wanted to mention in terms of endowaska compared to ayahuasca or psilocybin or LSD is that the ability to modulate your experience is so much, I guess, optimized when you do it naturally via a dark room retreat, like something you've experienced or sensory deprivation or even extended holotropic breath work. Mm-hmm. Because not everybody has positive experiences from psychedelics. and over time, some people become dependent on psychedelics. And we still have to realize that it's still currently illegal, so you can get locked up for this stuff. And for people that are interested in the topic of DMT or the topic of hallucinatory phenomena or transcendental states, accessing the endowaska system is not that difficult, I don't think, from my research and my experience and, and actually helping others reach those states. You can do it in gentle manners over time that allow you to experience uh, these life-changing episodes that will change your life for the better. So I just kind of wanted to put that out there. It's something to think about that, you know, the exogenous versus endogenous is is something that it's it's important to discuss. And and one one last thing on that one tip is that if you must use exogenous, I, I believe that you can use much less exogenous and use those same techniques that would use uh, on the endogenous upregulation and have the same effects. Wow. You know, I've worked with clients that after going to using these substances and maybe they weren't supported by the best practitioners, that's a big part of it, felt traumatized because it blew their psyche open and they saw so many things. It was so overwhelming that it, they almost, they came back with PTSD type symptom patterns and chronic anxiety and chronic insomnia. And it's no joke, you know, it's yeah. powerful, powerful medicines, but I've never heard of people doing just simple breath work and meditation having such, you know, it could be a very strong positive or possibly yeah. very strong negative results from the mm-hmm. medicines if you're not if your system is not cultivated and attuned in the right way to accept these experiences. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I would say from what I've heard, I, you know, 70%, 65 70% are having good experiences, but you know, we still have to look out for the people that aren't. And we can't keep glorifying one thing that I see that's prevalent and it's not surprising is everybody wants to take more, you know. At first, like five grams of psilocybin was considered, you know, breakthrough heroic dose. And now people are talking about eight, 20 grams stuff. And it's like, you got, you also need to be careful with that stuff. You know, this is, yeah, it's natural and all that, but you know, it's not a contest about who can see more aliens, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Those are some wise words. So to wrap up this amazing conversation, 
after all these years of researching and also your own personal experiences, what do you feel is the number one key? This is my last question. If you're to just give us the one single biggest piece of advice for us to level up and step into our next level of human possibilities, what's your number one advice for us? Well, I'm going to break it because I'm going to put two and it's breathing and shitting. <laughs> you have to get those right. Yeah, you have to. Uh, the gut brain is no joke. There's been a lot of DMT found in the stool. So we believe that much like melatonin levels are like 400 times higher in the gut than they are in the pineal gland, which is the most famous for producing it. We actually produce most of the, the melatonin in the gut, and I think the same goes for DMT. So we're going to access that and possibly reabsorb some of that goodness rather than just, you know, have it go out with our shit. Mm. Then uh, we're going to have to maybe get into optimizing our digestive function and, you know, get into some breathing states because I didn't know about all this stuff before, but Edith, you put me on this, was that the breathing plays a big role in your digestion and actually helping getting the thing moving, peristaltic action. So it's, it's multi-pronged, and that's what I'm saying. I'm breaking it with two, but it's actually one because it goes back to getting the gut right, but it, it goes with the breathing. So, yeah, I'm not going to give you any tips because I'm not a medical practitioner. Edith can give you all the health tips in terms of optimizing your gut function, but however you do it, optimize your digestion and your, your respiration, taking deep breaths. It's a step in the right direction for sure. That's so fascinating because in the original text of Chinese medicine, the lung and the large intestines was considered one contiguous organ system. Mm. Later on, they started breaking it into the yin and the yang, the two, two halves of it, but it was, it's all part of one element of the human physiology. So you're really onto something there. Yeah, it's exciting times because uh, I think a little by little disease, while you know, some perspectives thinks that it's getting more and more complex, right? More labeling a disease and, and more markers to look at. There's a, a different train of thought where it's getting even simpler, right? Where we're actually optimizing these functions to actually give us a platform, a, a foundation for wellness. And eventually maybe some spirituality and you know it's just this is it's an exciting time based on your perspective nice thank you for that amazing conversation so you guys if you'd like to keep in touch with john's work his first book question for the lion tamer one is already available on amazon and when will we get questions for the lion tamer two coming out well most of the meat is done um so i'm hoping we have by the by mid-july Awesome. Can't wait to read it and to keep in touch with John. His website is Q, the letter Q, the number four, LT, questions for the Lion Tamer, Q4LT.com. So. Exactly. Well, thanks so much for having me on, Edith. I wish uh, we could talk for another four or five hours because I always just enjoy chatting with you because I know that you're an explorer and you, know, you put your heart and soul into a lot of the stuff that you put out. And uh, one thing I wanted to say before I got off this is that you're actually the inspiration for all this because I saw, you know, not only your heart and your brain, but you, you, got, you have a lot of balls. And the Pranic, <laughs> the Pranic Festival, I was like, oh, man, like this, this woman's putting everything on there, on, on the table, you know. Forget about my reputation. Forget about Harvard. Let's go ahead and do this. So it, it, it inspired me to put my hat in the ring and look where we're at now. Yeah, I believe at the end of life, if we look back, no regrets, you know, 
for whatever reason, life gifted you these amazing, blissful, mystical experiences. And me too. And once you've actually had the direct experience of these states, you can't look at life with the same eyes ever again. And I think you start to feel a, a deep sense of responsibility to share with the world because you start to realize that most of us are suffering and spinning our wheels, yeah. maybe unnecessarily. And there's a much yeah. simpler and more elegant solution out there. You can't not be part of the solution anymore. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So well, thank you so much. I feel so blessed to have you as a friend and a fellow buddy on this journey of exploring next level awesomeness. Thank you so much for that awesome conversation. Hope we can do it again, bye. Bye. Hi friends, did you love that interview? If you did, please leave a review and share with all your friends so that many more people can benefit from these game-changing insights. You can also go onto our website, dredithubuntu.com, and subscribe to our newsletter, where you'll receive free trainings and next-level ninja tools that we only share on our newsletter. Together, let's turn your life into a brilliant masterpiece.